Guitarist John Fahey's hypnotic rhythm and endless reverence for American roots music made him a fixture of the folk revival scene of the 1950s and 60s. But in the book Blind Joe Death's America, John Fahey, The Blues, and Writing White Discontent, human geographer George Henderson says Fahey's writing betrays a deep cynicism about the trajectory of American popular culture. In another installment of WRGC's collaboration with the Center for Georgia Studies, historian Mark Huddle talks with George Henderson about John Fahey and what Fahey's music and ideas tell us about America's past and present. That's coming up after this short break for Station Identification. Stay tuned. You're listening to WRGC 88.3 FM, a broadcast service of Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university. Greetings, friends. I'm Mark Huddle, professor of history in the Department of History and Geography at Georgia College, and I am the director of the college's Center for Georgia Studies. This is the latest offering in our ongoing collaboration with WRGC 88.3, Milledgeville's National Public Radio Affiliate, and it is good to be with you. This installment is a special treat for all the music buffs out there. Uh, We are going to talk about the musician, composer, writer, and all-around iconoclast John Fahey. For those who might not know Fahey's work, he was an American fingerstyle guitarist who played the steel string acoustic guitar. In his compositions, he drew from folk and blues traditions, 20th century classical music, Portuguese and Brazilian musical traditions, and North Indian ragas. Fahey was a self-taught musician and, for the most part, a solo performer. He described his style of playing and composition as American primitive guitar. At the end of his career, he stepped into the avant-garde, earning a new generation of fans with important experiments in ambient and noise music. In 2003, Two years after Fahey's death, Rolling Stone magazine ranked him 35th on the magazine's list of 100 greatest guitarists of all time. By any measure, John Fahey was a formidable player. But as we'll hear about today, he was also a fairly prolific writer with a sprawling and eclectic range of interests and topics. John Fahey graduated with a degree in philosophy from American University in Washington, D.C. in 1963. He was a professionally trained folklorist whose master's thesis on blues legend Charlie Patton was published as a book in 1970. He spilled gallons of ink writing liner notes for record albums, reissues of old blues and country records, and especially for his own recordings where he used the notes to critique and poke fun at his audience, the record industry, the folk and blues revival that made him famous, and especially himself. Now, I'm sure this all sounds relatively normal, uh, if that is the right word, but Faye was a notoriously cantankerous person. Uh, His writing was challenging, to say the least. In style and structure, he often blurred the line between nonfiction and fiction, He would borrow stylistically from other writers, but then allow his prose to drift into experimental terrain. He was variously hilarious and insightful, and just as often insulting, aggravating, and offensive. So many of John Fahey's recordings were the very definition of sublime, but many of his writings were outright provocations. How do we understand that contradiction? What does that teach us about Fahey and the making of art in the second half of the 20th century? Our guest today is the perfect person to help us crack the Fahey code. 
Dr. George Henderson is a professor of human geography at the University of Minnesota. His new book, published by the University of North Carolina Press, is entitled Blind Joe Deaths America, John Fahey, The Blues, and Writing White Discontent. It is a fascinating and challenging work of cultural analysis that for the first time, I think, privileges John Fahey's prose. It places Fahey in the Cold War milieu of post-war America during the period of racial segregation, suburbanization, corporatization, and mass consumption, and the cultural shifts taking place as a new generation struggled to define itself. Dr. Henderson helps us to understand the context of Fahey's writing and Fahey himself, but he also very smartly deploys Fahey's writing in ways that illuminate the cultural history of the period. As such, it is a valuable addition to the literature on the 1950s and 1960s American culture. George Henderson, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks very much, Mark. I'm very happy to be here. Well, let's start with a Genesis story, shall we? Uh, How did this project come about? What sparked your interest, not just in John Fahey, but in his writing? Well, the origin of this particular book is rather distant from the book itself. When I first set out to write a new book, the book that I thought I would write was going to be sort of a a global history of the acoustic guitar, somewhat in the vein of other studies of global commodities like salt and sugar and coffee and so on that have become popular in recent years. And I thought the guitar would be a very fitting kind of an object because of the way it unites the study of natural materials and cultural processes and social history. And it's also a really personal instrument that people have a a very personal kind of individual relationship to. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if I chose a particular musician whose works would be a kind of touchstone where I might produce interchapters returning to various facets of that person's music? And I'd been a fan of John Fahey for a long time. And I thought, well, he's the perfect person in many ways because the vast preponderance of his recorded music has no lyrics, has no singing. We're simply listening to the instrument. And as I kind of got going and learning more about Fahey, various aspects of his biography that I was not aware of, in fact, nothing. I was aware of nothing of his biography. I simply liked music. Um, He became a more interesting figure to me. And so I thought, why not just write a book about Fahey? And as you already mentioned in your introduction, I became more aware of Fahey's writings the diversity of kinds of writing that say he did, and that itself really began to intrigue me. In your book, you use the word pivot a lot, and I like that instrument here because you know you're, we're talking about one of the really the most celebrated acoustic guitarists of a generation, and yet the book really mines his writing. I really enjoy the sections where you break down songs, the beginnings of the sections of the book. I think there's some wonderful music writing there, but but it's really the, uh, Fahey's own prose that's at the center of this. What is it that drew you to his writing, especially given its complexity? You know, it was a very iterative process. So I would say that Simply in the process, you know, as I was saying a moment ago, deciding to do a a project about Fahey, and gradually that meant reading what he himself had to say, reading the Charlie Patton book, noticing these somewhat wild liner notes to many of his records. I was simply fascinated by that aspect of his career, which for the most part had gone with very little comment. But what really cracked this project open for me was the appearance of a book called The John Fahey Handbook, of which there are two volumes. 
by a researcher named Claudio Guerrieri. And one of the wonderful things about that handbook is that it has a very comprehensive bibliography of John Fahey's writings. And in the handbook is listed a writing that Fahey did either during his last year in high school or perhaps just after he graduated high school. It's dated 1957. Fahey was born in 1939. So there he is, what, 18 years old. There's a piece of writing available from John Fahey as a teenager. And I thought, I've got to get my hands on this. And Claudio very generously made a copy of it available to me. And this would have been that, the, the essay, My my Dear Old Alma Mater, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And and so, you know, reading that piece, it really sort of smacks of um, teenage angst, of senioritis, as I think I say in my book. But it really led to the more basic question, how does an 18-year-old male in 1957 come to write something at all? What is that story? What is the story of making writers in post-war America? And that turned out to be, at least I think, a very generative question to ask. Because as it turns out, Fahey came of age in school during a period of great reevaluation in the teaching of writing. And I think this leads to one of the interesting insights that I hadn't really thought of about the 1950s. We think of the 1950s perhaps as a period of cultural repression, a great uh, emphasis on the American dream, which inculcates certain norms and certain desires that perhaps constrain people in a certain kind of reading. Then it enables them to become the highly individualized people that they might want to be. Well, the history of the teaching of writing tells a different kind of story because one of the values in the teaching of writing was the teaching of creative writing as opposed to just say the teaching of utilitarian writing, the writing of business letters, the learning of grammar and these sorts of things. It turns out there was a lot of discussion among teachers of the time that what they wanted to do was to address the sort of anxieties that had emerged after the war and with the rise of the Cold War. So the question of how can we get these young people to acknowledge their feelings, to acknowledge their emotions, to come to identify them with them to some degree so that they can get past the the trauma of the era. And it seemed to me that Fahey's essay, My Dear Old Alma Mater, was speaking directly to that new sort of push toward creative writing. So it's a conjecture, but my conjecture is that the way Fahey became a writer was that he was becoming a writer, like many of us do become when we're in grade school and high school. We're encouraged to write creatively, express feelings, express emotions, and so on. And that really kind of set the stage, I would say, for the way that I would try to understand what Fahey was doing in in many other writings after that period. Because one of the consistent through lines in his writing is, in fact, human feeling, human emotion, and Fahey's own feeling, Fahey's own emotions. What's interesting to me about my dear old alma mater, the sections that you share in the book, is that it sounds as if it could have been lifted from J.D. Salinger. There are themes of youthful alienation, the sense of being misunderstood by adults, especially parents and teachers, school as a machine that is transforming its students into products. There is a relentlessness to the angst that he is expressing. But as you note, He's, in a sense, being encouraged to express those emotions, that the pedagogy, in effect, encourages it. When we look at the cultural histories of the 1950s, youth and alienation are buzzwords that pop up again and again and again. But you see perhaps a causal effect in the sense that there was a certain encouragement 
for young people to actually express those ideas in this period? As you're pointing out, there's something happening in the culture more broadly, right? We've got Solinger's Catcher in the Rye. We've got films like Black War Jungle that are acknowledging, you know, a kind of youth in revolt or youth sort of alienated from the broader society. So there's that background there. There's that kind of inducement or encouragement. But if we're going to ask, like, how does a particular individual pick up that thread, it's a bit of a mystery. There's a biography of Fahey by Steve Lowenthal, a terrific piece of work that helps us understand certain biographical details about Fahey's past. It kind of makes sense that we would understand him to be a somewhat troubled figure, let's say. But if we're going to get right down into the marrow and ask the question, well, how does such an individual end up writing it all out? It makes sense to me to focus on that particular school environment and how any of these concerns that might be in, in the broader popular culture or the film culture might have echoes in, in the classroom, so to speak. I don't know if that really gets to your question, Tommy. Well, well, I think it does. And I'm curious about the connections between Fahey's upbringing, his experience in school, and the fact that he was born and raised in Tacoma Park, Maryland, right, suburb of Washington, D.C. Do you get a sense of how the suburban experience might have shaped Fahey's worldview? Yeah, it definitely did. He writes about it at great length in one of the books of published essays, How Bluegrass Music Destroyed My Life. He writes at great length about his suburban environment. He has a rather amazing, um, uh, one doesn't know whether to call it an essay or a story, perhaps a combination of the two, that in fact he calls communism, which is all about how he, as a youth, got together with a, a number of his buddies to sort of rebel against their suburban background, the Ethan Allen suburb in reference to the furniture company whose furniture presumably filled the living rooms of Tacoma Park homes. And the thing that troubles him about the suburb is the consumer ideology, the disciplining of children by parents and at school to turn them from playful creatures who are interested in their own innocent worlds to turn them into good workers and, and good citizens and all the things that will sort of kill their, their instincts to remain creative people. And that's a lot of what he has to say about the suburbs. At a certain point, he describes his music as playing the pathos of the suburbs. So it had an enormous influence on him, I think. You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and George Henderson about the book Blind Joe Death's America, John Fahey, The Blues, and Writing White Discontent. George Henderson is a professor of human geography at the University of Minnesota. Mark Huddle is the director of the Center for Georgia Studies at Georgia College. This conversation is the sixth collaboration between WRGC 88.3 FM and the Center for Georgia Studies to present compelling conversations about history and life in the American South. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more conversation about John Fahey and the American mid-century folk revival. achieved his initial status as a musician and performer during the folk and blues revival of the 1950s and 60s. Help us understand the folk revival. What, what was it? 
Well, there are different ways to answer that question, I suppose. Um, the folk revival was something that emerged in the 50s and 60s in an environment of mass industrialization, mass culture, mass consumerism. It was an attempt to see if older musics arising in, in different regions of the country might be appreciated because there might be a set of values there that have been lost and ought to be brought to light and enjoyed for their own sake, or music could be enjoyed for its own sake, but also for its association with some sense of a world that had been lost unwittingly. And you have major figures like John Lomax, Alan Lomax, the Seeger family, who were instrumental in making the country aware of these older musics, and not just older musics, but also music that was in fact still being played. It was also a period when Depression era, pre-war, as we say, pre-war musicians were being, quote unquote, rediscovered. Mississippi John Hurt, Book of White, Skip James. These became major events in the context of the folk revival, that there might be musicians who had recorded music and whose music was made popular during the folk revival, that they might actually still be alive and they might be brought back onto the stage, perhaps even recording new music. And Fahey's career was very much of that moment. Growing up in Tacoma Park, Maryland, he and his family had access to a country music park called New River Ranch, where some of these musics, not so much African-American blues or African-American country blues, but more rural white music was popular. And I'm committing a, a faux pas there right away in um, segregating white music from African-American music because historically there was a great deal of, of overlap in the repertoires. So I don't want to give a wrong impression. But certainly uh, New River as a yeah. space was a segregated space, though. So I think it, at least in yeah. historical context, you would have been on sound footing there. Yeah, I, I think that's right. So Fahey's sort of early attraction to rural music or the music of, of the folk revival was music mostly played by white musicians as evidenced at New River Ranch, to which his parents took him on, on weekends. He was 12, 13, 14 years old. And so his musical tastes were beginning to be formed around that aesthetic. And then as fate would have it, Fahey had access to a small group of record collectors who were keenly interested in this same music and whose interest extended to African-American country blues. And it wasn't long before Fahey got exposure to that music. You know, the story goes, and here I want to say that some of Fahey's telling is perhaps performative. He describes the first time listening to uh, a Blind Willie Johnson record that it just blew him away literally knocked him off his feet. So that was a, an introduction to the African-American musical tradition that he became ever more attracted to. And the key person eventually became the music of Charlie Patton. Charlie Patton, not just as a musician and an entertainer, but Charlie Patton as someone that say he felt he had a great kinship to because of what he he felt was Charlie Patton's great depth of feeling. So I think a line can be drawn from Fahey's interest in the folk revival, in country blues, in what he was learning about Charlie Patton and why he was attracted to the music of Charlie Patton and Charlie Patton as a, as a historical figure from the Delta back to this interest in the identification of, of feeling, of emotion, and wanting to really kind of justify feeling, justify emotion. So we go from the folk revival right back to Fahey, the high school student, having learned to acknowledge the kinds of emotions that he was feeling. That's a really interesting observation, though, because in effect, you're describing Fahey engaging in 
the kind of romanticization that he tended to fault, I think, the folk and blues revival for. And let me expand on that a little bit so that we can get you to talk about some other really interesting points in your book. In a number of places, you you make this observation that, that Fahey was of the revival, but not in the revival, that there was a, a kind of tension in which, you know, he will emerge as really a major figure in, in the folk revival into the 60s, embraced at the very least as a kind of cult figure during that period. But it also seems to have set him against the revival and the revivalists and what he interpreted as the goals of the folk revival. You know, he benefits from this surge of interest in roots music. He, in fact, is a record collector. He goes into the South to try to, quote unquote, rediscover some of these old bluesmen. At the same time, he seems to be at war with the revivalists and the revival itself. Why is that? That's a great question. And I think you're nailing something really important about John Fahey in that he kind of wants to have his cake and eat it too. And as you say, he was participating in folk revival kinds of activities. He founded an independent record label to record and release his own music, as well as certain figures of the period. He was a song hunter, a tracker down of these forgotten figures. He co-rediscovered, as they say, um, Skip James and, and Booker White along with some confreres of his who, who went south looking for these people, he helped nudge the folk revival along and yet claimed to feel quite different from what he described as its main sort of motive force, which was the romanticization of African-American bluesmen by disaffected, alienated, uneducated, white, middle-class suburbanites who were drawn to this music thinking it was the popular music of African-Americans of the time, not realizing it was, as Fahey described it, a remnantal music, a music that was no longer popular among most African-Americans. And they simply did not understand the very period they lived in. They did not understand themselves. He found the whole folk revival movement, and in fact, the, the 60s as such, the movement, the countercultures, as it's sometimes called, to be a, a site of real emotional repression, where everyone is mellow and not acknowledging their alienation, their rage, the bad feelings they had, all of which say he wanted in some sense to be able to talk about, be able to write about perhaps be able to hang on to. So there's Fahey of the moment, of history, of his time, but wanting to claim a very kind of unique positionality within it. And again, this ties right back to the very, as he felt, particular special relationship that he felt to Charlie Patton, a figure that he felt was misunderstood by these white middle-class suburbanites, but that Fahey himself a white middle-class suburbanite, uniquely understood. And this becomes one of the major arguments of the book that he eventually wrote about Charlie Patton, trying to understand Patton in a way that had not been understood before. Another part of the story is Fahey's insistence that the blues is not a political form. It's not a political music. It is not a music of social protest. And there he's going against the grain of a good many observers, African-American, white, many music critics, who at the time would say, well, perhaps in blues lyrics, we don't find necessarily uh, lots of protest music as such. But the music itself, both as a form, as it was practiced, and if one reads the lyrics, in fact, there is a kind of protest there. And say he would really have none of it. Well, that certainly put him at odds with his peers in the folk revival. And I'm curious about this. I mean, as we move towards this discussion of Fahey's 
struggle to cultivate and embrace emotions, the theme of emotions in, in his work, it seems that, at least in the case of Charlie Patton, he hones in on the expression of feelings and emotion in Patton's work. He connects to it, but he somehow is able to disconnect it from the structures of power in the society that would have created those emotions in the first place. It's a theme in different instances that he seems to come back to in his writing over and over again throughout the rest of his life. It's almost a willful refusal to engage power. Do you see that? Or is there is there a way that we can understand that impulse in his work? Well, the way that I see it is that he has a hard time for reasons I'm not sure I myself understand well. He has a hard time connecting the dots. He's certainly aware of these structures of power. He's aware of racism. He's aware of the civil rights movement and why it emerged and, and what its goals were. And he had ultimately some 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 sympathy for that. He was not a marcher in civil rights protests per se, but here and there in his writing, he acknowledges the desirability of, of the civil rights movement, in particular after the assassination of Martin Luther King. So the problem here is the reticence, willful or based to some degree on some sort of naivete to connect these things. He goes so far as to conjecture that Charlie Patton, his world was so limited. He traveled so little um, and uh, was not, not enough well-educated to really understand these structures of power such that his music would, would actually um, develop into a, a critique of it. So I'm saying that Fahey is aware of these structures of power, but insists on Patton's music in particular as not being a political music. He insists that Patton is an entertainer capable of representing and generating great depth of feeling, both his own and feeling on the part of his listeners. Now, it seems to me that this is a great projection of Fahey's own anxieties about the political moment, how to... Um, how to connect with it. Um, and uh, let me take a moment to, to describe what this moment was about, at least insofar as I understand it. So if, if we read about the 1960s, quote unquote, uh, in the ways that we understand what we're talking about when we say the 60s, both at the time, but also now, the idea is that there were sort of two great sort of cultural social streams, let's say. One is what we could call the new left, the sort of organized political activity to alter the structures of power in society around race, around class, and, and so forth. So sort of direct political involvement. The other great stream is this idea of personal liberation, individual emancipation, uh, self-realization, self-fulfillment. And these things are to some degree running in parallel, but to some degree they're also intersecting. Depends on what we're reading, who we're paying attention to, and so on. And Fahey is writing primarily from the side of emotion, self-realization, the acknowledgement of the ways that one as an individual might be alienated in society. But he does this in such a way to keep looking across at this other stream of organized political activity. I think it interests him, but it doesn't interest him enough to jump over to it and figure out how he himself might be involved. I don't have a great answer to that question exactly, except that perhaps, and this is what I would conjecture, his sort of sensibilities were so geared early on toward this sort of emotional uh, stream, 
toward this idea of human feeling and the recognition of human feeling as in some sense sort of the greatest accomplishment one could have in life to build a creative life around what one feels and to live out one's authenticity on that score. This obviously was a hugely attractive idea to him. And and it's a through line basically in all his work. Now, one could also go the route of acknowledging that Tacoma Park, Maryland also is a sort of it's a it's a, a mid-Atlantic state with certain strains of let's say a deep awareness of southern history and southern culture perhaps one could go so far as to say that say he participated in this interpretation of the civil war that goes by the phrase the, the noble cause so uh, in the noble cause interpretation yes the south was ultimately wrong but the cause was noble they fought for what they believed in and did so honorably and, and honestly i think there's probably some evidence that these ideas were part of, of fahey's education and they may have kind of followed him along, as it were. He may have stood uh, in their shadow. And that may have had something to do with his reticence to jump on board with new left ideals. You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and George Henderson about the book, Blind Joe Death's America. John Fahey, The Blues, and Writing White Discontent. George Henderson is a professor of human geography at the University of Minnesota. Mark Huddle is the director of the Center for Georgia Studies at Georgia College. This conversation is the sixth collaboration between WRGC 88.3 FM and the Center for Georgia Studies to present compelling conversations about history and life in the American South. help but be drawn back to his criticisms of the folk revival and maybe the movement in general. But then looking at his interpretation of Charlie Patton's life and work, specifically the ways in which he strips Charlie Patton of agency, you know, that he is this completely isolated figure, which runs counter to what the bluesmen were all about, which was always being on the move, always rambling in a part of the world that was in a lot of ways static. They were a subversive element because of their kind of constant movement. So I guess what I'm trying to frame here is that, you know, John Fahey was trained as a professional folklorist at UCLA under the, the tutelage of the great D.K. Wilgus. He's entering the field at a time when there were these great debates over the politics of authenticity. Certainly, having read his Charlie Patton book, he was, I think, a talented student that was at least able to communicate the lessons that he had learned in the field of professional folklore. And yet the conclusions that he draws are rooted less in the material realities of what the Mississippi Delta was like, and more about the emotions that are dredged up by the body of work itself. So I, I almost see his interpretation of Patton, in a sense, illustrates both his disagreement with the folk revival and his, his embrace of it. Is there any way that we can reconcile this really strange tension? Because you know, so much of his rhetoric is so aggressive and confrontational, and yet at the same time, he's doing so many of the things that he accuses his critics of. There's a phrase I use in the book that John Fahey tells a political story in spite of himself. So whereas he wants to discount political interpretations of Patton or really any other blues figure, 
what interests him is the possibility that on individual levels, people might recognize each other's humanity because they recognize each other as emotional, creative, feeling beings. And it seems to me that he is interested in the making of a kind of society where it would be possible for people to directly communicate on that level. And so even as he is producing this great disavowal from the folk revival and from its politics, right, from its interest in at least some wings of the folk revival in social reconstruction, the dismantling of certain power structures and so on, I think this question actually interests Fahey at the end of the day, but he's interested in a different route toward it. And again, Patton looms large here. And folly isn't quite the word, but the, um, the presumptuous of this is enormous. Patton is, after all, dead. There's no possibility for Fahey to communicate with him. And so everything that Fahey might have to say about Patton is, of course, on Fahey's terms because Patton's not there to object. Let me go back to something. Uh, you mentioned the significance of Fahey taking a degree in folklore and mythology at UCLA under not so much the founding figures of folklore, but the figures who were really helping to remake it into a, a modern field of study. One of the things that Fahey says about Charlie Patton's lyrics is that they're nonsensical, they're irrational. He is just making stuff up as he goes along in order to entertain. And Fahey wants Patton's fans, you know, Fahey's contemporaries, that is, to understand Patton doesn't mean anything in particular. There's no meaning there. There's just free associating. Well, it turns out that one of the ideas about what makes folklore folklore is something called associative thinking. That is this idea that there's a great repertoire of ideas that those who are wittingly or unwittingly making folklore are in fact drawing on to tell stories, to develop stories, to sing songs, develop songs, alter lyrics, and so on, that it is an associative process. And I think that Fahey is describing Patton as a producer of songs in this associative model. I think what it is that, that Fahey means when he says that Patton's music is nonsensical, I think he means that Patton is an associative thinker in making his music. There's a very interesting sidebar here that one could make to Fahey's own writing, which itself, especially in his liner notes, can be nonsensical, irrational sounding, and deeply associative in the way that he just seems to be rambling on about things in a very sort of random fashion. There's a specific piece of writing, which is about Patton. It's about race relations and civil rights, where Fahey ultimately, in a sort of long-winded footnote, what interests Fahey is the lack of communication between blacks and whites, as he puts it. And, and the whole problem that civil rights is trying to address is something Fahey wants to identify as a problem of communication. And this piece of writing ends in a string of complete sort of nonsense words. But given that this piece of writing is also about Charlie Patton, I think it is Fahey making cause with Charlie Patton to produce the message, to get across the idea that some form of interpersonal communication is, is still possible. So I return to the idea that for Fahey, politics is about feeling, it's about communication, it's about getting rid of the shackles of emotional repression so that people can speak honestly to each other. The irony is that Fahey cannot, of course, speak to Patton because Patton is dead, but he can develop a kind of rapport, he thinks, with Patton, which will be a kind of message that Fahey wants to convey to people of his time in the 60s and 70s. 
So that that's kind of how I read what Fahey is up to. Being political in spite of his insistence to the contrary. I think it's also important to point out that Fahey softened his stance near the end of his life when it comes to characterizing Patton. In his master's thesis, which became the book, um, Charlie Patton, he describes Patton as maybe not even intelligent enough to have understood his economic circumstances, not his personal economic circumstances, but the whole sort of political economy of the Delta. By the late 90s, Fahey had come around and had ceded ground to his critics, to Fahey's critics, David Evans, another musicologist being one, basically saying to Fahey, come on, you know Patton's a, a smart guy, and surely you, you don't believe that he was as ignorant as you claim that he was. And so Fahey, in fact, in a late piece of writing produced shortly before he died, acknowledges that he was wrong. But the interesting thing is he doubles down on this idea of Patton as primarily a figure we should understand as a deeply emotional, deeply emotive individual. And at the end of the day, this is what interests Fahey. You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and George Henderson about the book Blind Joe Death's America, John Fahey, The Blues, and Writing White Discontent. George Henderson is a professor of human geography at the University of Minnesota. Mark Huddle is the director of the Center for Georgia Studies at Georgia College. This conversation is the sixth collaboration between WRGC 88.3 FM and the Center for Georgia Studies to present compelling conversations about history and life in the American South. here a little bit. One essay in particular I wanted to ask you about, towards the end of the book, you cite a rather famous essay for Fahey, or maybe I should say infamous, where he likens performance to warfare. What did he mean by that? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So this is an essay. Again, I have to acknowledge my friend Claudio Guerrieri because um, I was not aware of, of this essay until Claudio's book came out with its wonderful, well, many wonderful things in it. So this is an essay called Performance as War, which Fahey published in an alternative news weekly in Vancouver, British Columbia, called The Georgia Strait. Interestingly, a good chunk of that essay was published in the Guitar Player magazine the year before, but the essay was called, I believe, Vertical and Horizontal Guitar Playing. The difference between the two essays is that performance as war, for much of its content, is a stringing together of passages from the philosopher Georg Hegel, the German philosopher of the early 1800s, and existential philosophers like Walter Kaufman and uh, a number of others to convey the idea that what performance is about is one might play the same song by title that one played in a previous performance or on a record, but the idea of performance per se was to perform songs differently, to go through a process of what he and, and Hegel call an overcoming, right? One shouldn't stick with one's satisfactions, but instead should try and identify what one is dissatisfied by and try to figure out what that dissatisfaction is and try to get to a new position, a new version of the song, a better version of the song, a more creatively emotional version of the song. And so that itself is a kind of war. 
But the war that uh, Fahey also means is the war against audiences who will settle for just anything. They'll settle for what the artist might describe or might feel as a completely mediocre performance. And this really sets Fahey off. He does not want to be appreciated by people who would be satisfied with a mediocre performance. And he doesn't want to be appreciated by people that he doesn't think are enlightened or educated or, or so on. It's a bit of a superiority complex, let's say. But the interesting idea here, in addition, is that the essay consists of a great many passages lifted directly, as I was saying, lifted directly from, from Hegel and Walter Kaufman and a number of others without any attribution. And so a reader of the essay would be completely confused by what's going on here because the passages, unless one knows exactly where they come from, seem to make no sense. But with a little bit of digging, you can kind of start to put together an argument, or if not digging as to exactly where these passages come from, one can discern a kind of argument at work here. And the argument that Fahey is working on is that if we had a society where all individuals were prizing their own feelings and their own creative impulses above all others, society itself would become impossible. Social arrangements would become impossible. At the end of the day, there has to be compromise. And so there he is with this realization that at the end of the day, he cannot simply be the great artist whose own feelings matter above all else's if he wants to be in society. He has to make compromises. And he reaches a kind of impasse. He doesn't really know what to do. And he just sort of says, well, at the end of the day, all will be well. We'll get along. We'll just sort of deal. He has no great answers. So that's that piece. And let me string this out a little bit to return to some of your questioning. It seems to me to be the case that the feelings of ambivalence, of ennui, perhaps of boredom, lack of certainty about what to feel, how one should feel, is kind of self-perpetuating. There's not a great need on Fahey's part to come to a feeling of certainty about life, about direction, and so on. It's enough to simply identify that one feels uncertain, one feels a little lost, one feels a little ambivalent. To do that work is to achieve the kind of recognition of emotion and feeling that set Fahey out on this path to begin with. I think this ties into the ways that, that Fahey sort of settles for this rather than, let's say, acknowledging the ways that power structures do work in important and significant ways against African Americans, let's say, because this is a concern of Fahey's. But he's sort of lost in a certain feeling about this, feeling about it a little ambivalent about what should be done and how it should be done. That is, how racially oppressive structures should be dismantled. And so there he is sitting with his feelings of uncertainty, but in such a way that he feels the culture doesn't need him to resolve those feelings because it is those feelings that are okay to have. Well, George, we are coming up on the end of our time. Let me ask you one last question. I think when you undertake a project such as the one that you've now completed, especially one in which you take up you know, the story of a rather difficult individual, you go through a process of growth and learning as you work through it. Ultimately, if you could leave us with one takeaway, what did you learn from engaging John Fahey, and especially his writings, with the depth that you did? 
what ultimately is the lesson that you carried away from this project? One thing I would want to say, um, this isn't directly an answer to that question, but I, I just didn't want to forget to say it, is that someone's written work, John Fahey's written work, is not the same thing as John Fahey the person. And that was an enormous challenge in, in writing this book. I did not want to conflate a study of the written work with, with the biography of Fahey. They, they are different things. I think that Fahey wrote in order to explore who he could be as a self. I concentrated on work that was published and not work meant for private consumption because I wanted to you know, stick with what he might feel comfortable putting out in the world. So what did I learn? I think what I learned is not something too terribly unique. We know that there are artists out there who are troubling and troubled, and yet we know that the work is astounding. The work in its domain, whether it's it's painting or novels or writings of a wide variety of kinds like Fahey, sort of creates a kind of new space within which to think about the questions that interest us. When it comes to Fahey's music, what I learned is that it's important to go on appreciating it, loving it. I'm a huge fan of Fahey's music, but it's not a bad idea to acknowledge that there are other creative sides to Fahey, and some of those are very difficult. And we have to learn to hold these kinds of things in, in tension. I wouldn't even necessarily call them contradictory. It's, it's one in the same life that was lived that wrote and that produced music and did a great many other things. And to hive off the music and to pretend that that's all Fahey was would do Fahey a disservice. We do Fahey or any artist a service by trying to understand the fuller round of their creative pursuits. I think it enriches us. So I think those are some of the things that I learned, Mark. Excellent. Well, George, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And again, many congratulations on your book. We wish you the very best with the project and the best of luck moving forward. Thanks, Mark. It's really been a pleasure. John Fahey came of age in an America enduring wrenching change. And like so many others of his generation, he struggled to navigate those changes. He rose to prominence as a musician. He was both the beneficiary and chronicler of a musical revival that on the one hand brought the culture of rural African-American blues and early country music to a new generation, and on the other hand, recast that culture in ways that were self-serving and often fictive. His celebrity was rooted in the revival and much of his writing raged against it. He was the sum of his many contradictions and yet from all that conflict, much of it described by George Henderson, came this superlative art. By working through the chapters of Fahey's life, tracking his personal changes through his writing, Dr. Henderson does much more than expand our knowledge of this great musician. He also gives us a glimpse of the great forces reshaping American society after World War II. The brave new world of nuclear terror, the affluence and anxiety of economic expansion, the impact of suburbanization, corporatization, and mass consumption, and even the rumblings of a great movement to challenge white supremacy. Fahey was struggling to find a place in that world. He was a product of that world and he benefited from it, but he never stopped trying to maintain his own sense of being an outsider. 
to resist what he perceived as the homogenization of American culture, he carved out his own imagined America, Blind Joe Death's America. His music, which continues to inspire countless artists in our own time, reflects that endless searching and raging against the world and his struggle to find his place in it. George Henderson's book is called Blind Joe Death's America, John Fahey, The Blues, and Writing White Discontent. Thank you all for listening to this latest presentation. I'm Mark Huddle, and I'll see you next time.